You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 155, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Christ and the Human Soul, Ten Lectures, in uh, four sections. This is Section 2, entitled The Spiritual Foundation of Morality. And the first lecture in this section, I'm going to number also as Lecture 3 of the total of ten, translated by Agnes Schneeberg de Stur. And this Lecture 3 is uh, given in Norköping on May 28th, 1912. Following an impulse that has presented itself to me, and we may perhaps be able to say more about this later, we will in the coming days be taking up one of the most important, one of the most significant subjects in our anthroposophical understanding of life. We are indeed often reproached for wanting to study far distant cosmic developments in their connection with the human being for preferring to lift ourselves up into spiritual worlds, and for only wishing to contemplate far-distant events of the past and far-reaching perspectives of the future, while almost completely disregarding the realm that should be of more immediate interest, the realm of human morals and human ethics. It is quite true, and those reproaching us see this correctly, that we must regard the realm of human morals as one of the most essential. But what must also be said in answer to the reproach that we are less concerned with this important realm of human soul and social life than with more distant spheres is that we feel able to approach this subject only with the greatest reverence and respect, particularly if we feel the full significance and the implications of the anthroposophical conception of life. For we realize that if this subject is to be considered in the right way, it concerns us as closely as anything can, and that it therefore calls for the most serious and worthy preparation. The reproach that is made against us, in the sense described above, could perhaps be expressed in the following words. What is the use of making extensive studies of the universe? Why talk about all these reincarnations of many beings, or about the complicated conditions of karma, when surely the most important thing in life is what was repeatedly said by a certain wise man to his followers after he had attained the apex of a life rich in wisdom, indeed after he had grown so ill and weak that he had to be carried? Quote, children love one another. As you know, these words were uttered by John the Evangelist when he was a very old man, and it has often been emphasized that these four words, quote, children love one another, close quote, represent the essence of the deepest moral wisdom. And so many might ask, why do we need anything else if goodness, if sublime moral ideals can be fulfilled in such a simple way, as implied by these words of John the Evangelist. One thing is 
lost sight of when people conclude from the above statement, which is absolutely correct in itself, that it is sufficient to know that they should love one another. What is overlooked, namely, is the fact that the individual who is quoted as having borne witness to these words articulated them at the close of a life utterly rich in wisdom, a life which included the writing of the most profound and important of the Gospels. What is overlooked is the fact that he who uttered these words acquired the right to do so only at the end of this wisdom-rich life, a life that led him to great and mighty experiences. Someone who has lived a life such as this is justified in distilling everything people can experience through the deep wisdom contained in the Gospel of John into the above-mentioned words of epitomized wisdom, words that flow out of unfathomable depths of soul and can then also flow into the depths of other hearts and souls. But someone who is not in such a position must indeed first earn the right to express the highest moral truths in such a simple manner by seriously contemplating the foundations of the world's secrets. The often heard saying, quote, when two persons say the same thing, it is not really the same, close quote, may be trivial, but it is especially valid in this case. If someone who simply declines to know or understand anything of the world's mysteries says, quote, it is really quite simple to describe the highest moral life, close quote, and uses the words, quote, children love one another, close quote, then this is quite different from the evangelist John's uttering these words, even more so at the close of a life so rich in wisdom. For this reason, someone who understands these words of John ought to draw from them a quite different conclusion than is usually done. The conclusion to be drawn from this should be that at first one ought to remain silent about profoundly significant words such as these, and that one may speak such words only if one has gone through the necessary preparation and reached the necessary maturity. But now that we have made this statement, which certainly will have touched the hearts of many of you, something quite different will come to mind, something of profound importance. You might say to yourself, quote, It may be true that the deepest significance of moral principles can be understood only at the end of a life of wisdom, but despite this, people speak of them all the time. How then would it be possible to foster any kind of moral community or social endeavor, if one has to wait until one has developed insight into the highest ethical principles, wait until the apex of one's striving for wisdom has been attained. Morality is what is most necessary for human social life. Yet here it is asserted that moral principles can be acquired only at the end of a path of striving for wisdom. Close quote. At this point you might reasonably say that you would begin to doubt the wisely structured order of the world, if this order were such, that what one needed most could be gained only at the conclusion of one's human striving. The answer to what has just been characterized is abundantly given by life itself. You need only compare two cases, which are undoubtedly well known to you in one form or another, and you will see immediately 
that both statements can be correct, that we attain to the highest ethical principles and to insight into them only at the conclusion of our striving for wisdom, and also that moral and social communities and endeavors cannot exist without morality. You will see this at once if you bring to mind two situations which you will certainly have encountered in one form or another. For who has not known someone who is highly developed intellectually, possibly even someone who may not only have had a clear intellectual grasp of natural science, but also a good theoretical and practical understanding of many esoteric and spiritual truths, and yet was not a particularly moral person? Who has not seen clever and spiritually well-developed people going morally astray? And yet, who has not also experienced the other situation, from which we may learn so much? Who has not known someone with a more restricted intellectual horizon and more limited knowledge? For example, a nanny who raised not her own children, but those of other people, her employers. She may have nurtured those children, one after the other, from the very first weeks of their physical existence, contributed to their education, and sacrificed everything for them in an absolutely loving, selfless way, perhaps right up to her death, with the utmost devotion imaginable. And yet if anyone had come to her with moral axioms derived from the very highest stores of wisdom, she probably would not have been particularly interested. She probably would have found them quite unintelligible and useless. But with her moral actions, she accomplished more than she would have by merely acknowledging moral axioms. And what such a case often accomplishes as well is that it causes us to bow down in awe before what streams from the heart into life and creates so much goodness. Facts such as these often answer the riddles of life far more clearly than do theoretical explanations. For we can recognize from these facts that the wisdom-filled creator powers of evolution did not wait until human beings had discovered moral principles before imparting moral conduct to the world. Therefore, if we temporarily disregard immoral acts, whose root cause we shall also get to know in these lectures, we may say that there is something embedded in the human soul as a divine heritage, something given to us as original or, in quotes, instinctive morality, which makes it possible for humanity to wait until it can discover moral principles. But perhaps it is actually not necessary to trouble ourselves so much about exploring moral principles. For might it not be said that it is best if people trust their original moral instincts and do not get tangled up with theoretical explanations about morality? That this too is not the case is just what these lectures are meant to show. They are meant to show that at least in the present stage of humanity we must seek for an anthroposophical understanding of morality and that developing this morality must be a task that arises as a fruit of our whole anthroposophical striving and our anthroposophical science. There is a modern philosopher who, notwithstanding the fact that his philosophy also contains many errors, made a correct observation. Schopenhauer, a philosopher who undoubtedly is also known here in Northern Europe,
said something which particularly with respect to the principles of morality is quite correct. He has said, quote, to preach morality is easy, but to found morality is difficult, close quote. This statement is very true, for there is almost nothing easier than to pronounce in a manner that speaks to the broadest human sentiments what a person ought to do or leave undone in order to be a good person. Some people will, no doubt, be offended when this is said to be easy. But easy it is. And anyone who knows life, anyone who knows the world, would have to agree that there is hardly anything more discussed than the correct principles of ethical conduct. And it is especially true that a speaker meets with almost universal approval when talking about these general principles of ethics. It makes the audience feel so good, one might say, for they feel so strongly that they can agree with what the speaker is saying when he comments on the very broadest principles of human morality. Moral teaching and moral preaching, however, do not establish morality. They truly do not. If morality could be established by teaching and preaching morals, then there would be no immorality at this time. Then humanity would be overflowing with moral actions. For undoubtedly everyone has had many opportunities to hear the most beautiful moral principles, especially as people are so fond of preaching them. However, knowing what one ought to do what is morally right, is of least importance when it comes to establishing a moral basis. What is of most importance for a moral foundation, on the other hand, is that there should be impulses living within us, impulses which through their inward strength, their inward power, are converted into moral actions and thus become moral realities in outer life. As is well known, moral sermons do not produce this result. This means that morality can be established only if we are guided to the sources from which the impulses are to be drawn that supply us with the forces that lead to moral conduct. Just how difficult it is to find these sources is shown by the simple fact that there have actually been innumerable attempts, for example from the philosophical side, to found a system of ethics, a code of morals. Just think how many different answers have been given to the question, what is the good, or what is virtue? Try collecting all that the philosophers have said, beginning with Plato and Aristotle, passing through the Epicureans, the Stoics, the Neoplatonists, and the whole succession of philosophers, down to the modern philosophical viewpoints. Bring together all that has been said about the nature of goodness and virtue, say, from Plato to Herbert Spencer. And you will see how many different approaches there have been in trying to penetrate to the sources of moral life and the sources of moral impulses. In these lectures I hope to show that only by deepening our spiritual understanding of life, by immersing ourselves in its esoteric secrets, can we get insight not merely into the moral doctrines, but also into the moral impulses, the moral sources of life. A quick glance will show, however, that this issue of morality is by no means such a simple matter as might be conveniently supposed. Let us for the moment leave aside what is usually regarded as moral and instead consider certain human realms of life, 
that may contribute significantly toward developing a moral conception of life. One thing, and certainly not the least, among the many things we learn through esoteric science is the knowledge that very diverse conceptions and impulses existed among the various peoples in the different parts of the earth. Compare, for example, two seemingly very separate regions of humanity. Let us go back to the venerable life of ancient India and observe how it gradually unfolded right up into more recent times. For as you know, the characteristic features of such ancient times still have validity right into modern times. And this is especially true with respect to ancient India and several other Asiatic cultures, even more so than for any other regions of earthly life. The feelings, the sentiments, the thoughts, the views that were found in this region in ancient times have continued into modern times. It is remarkable how in these modern cultures an image of primordial times has been preserved, and how, when we consider what has been maintained up to our own day, we are at the same time, as it were, looking into the remote past. Now, we will not be able to come to a real understanding of the different peoples on earth if we must presumptively apply our own moral standards. For this reason, let us for the moment leave out what could potentially be said about the morality of those times and ask only what has evolved from these distinctive characteristics of the ancient, venerable Indian culture. What we initially find there as seemingly highly revered and sanctified is what we may call devotion or surrender to the spiritual. And this devotion to the spiritual is the more highly valued and held sacred the more people are able to retreat into their inner self, live within their own quietude, and direct the best in themselves to the heights of the spiritual world, while disregarding everything related to their existence in the physical world. We find that this devotional surrender of the soul to the foundations of existence is the uppermost duty of those who belonged or belong to the highest caste of Indian life, the Brahmins. All the things they do, all their impulses, are directed toward this devotion, and nothing impresses the moral sensitivities and feelings of these people more than this turning to the divine spiritual, in a mood of deep introspection and self-renunciation, with a devotion that dismisses anything physical. And the extent to which this attitude permeates the ethical life of this culture can be gauged from another fact. The fact, namely, that those who belonged to the other castes, especially in ancient times, considered it quite natural for the caste committed to devotion, religious life, and ritual to be regarded as something that stood out and was worthy of veneration. Accordingly, their whole culture was permeated with devotion to the divine spiritual and all of life was placed in service to this impulse. The reasons for this cannot be understood by means of general moral principles laid down by any particular philosophy, because in the period when these things were developing in ancient India, it was as yet impossible for such feelings and impulses to develop among other peoples. In order for these impulses to develop with this kind of intensity, both the temperament and fundamental character of precisely the Indian people were required.
in the course of civilization, these impulses then radiated out from India and spread over the rest of the earth. If we wish to understand what is meant by the divine spiritual, then we must go to this primal source. Let us now turn our attention away from the Indian culture and direct it toward another culture. Let us consider the peoples of Europe in the beginning when Christianity had not yet permeated, but was just beginning to enter European culture. You all know that the Christianity, spreading into Europe from the east and south, came up against quite definite impulses, quite definite inner values and forces that were living in the peoples of Europe. And anyone who studies the history of the introduction of Christianity into Central Europe and also here in the North, especially someone who studies this with spiritual methods, knows what price had to be paid for Christianity to find a balance through a variety of different Christian impulses with what it came up against from Northern and Central Europe, a price that affected various realms of life. And now let us ask, as we have also done in the case of the Indian people, what were the preeminent ethical impulses encountered by Christianity as the moral treasures, as the moral heritage of those peoples whose descendants make up the present European population, especially the population of the north of Central Europe and of England? We need only mention a single one of the principal virtues, and we know at once that we are speaking about something that is truly characteristic of these northern and central European peoples. We need only mention the terms courage or fortitude or, quote, activating all one's strength in accomplishing one's innermost intentions in the physical world, close quote. And we will have characterized the chief virtue brought by the Europeans to Christianity. The other virtues are basically derived from this one principal virtue, and the further back we go in time, the more we find this to be the case. If we consider the fundamental nature of true fortitude or courage, we find that it encompasses an inner fullness of life that is practically inexhaustible. This abundance of life was the most striking characteristic in these olden times, particularly among the peoples of Europe. They had within themselves more of this quality than they could use, and so, quite instinctively, they followed the impulse to dispense what they had in superabundance. One could even say that they were more wasteful in letting their moral abundance, their competence, their fitness, their life impulses pour out into the physical world than they were with respect to anything else. It really was as if the human beings, every single one, belonging to the ancient European peoples, had been given an excess of forces, more than they needed for their own personal use. They could use this superfluity of forces to pour out, be wasteful, and perform their warlike deeds, those deeds of ancient virtue that are actually classed as vices in modern times, but also, for example, to be chivalrous and generous. Acting out of magnanimity was characteristic of the people of ancient Europe, just as acting out of devotion was characteristic of the people of ancient India. theoretical moral principles or axioms would have been of no use to the people of ancient Europe. They would have displayed little understanding for such principles. 
preaching morality to ancient Europeans would have been like giving those who do not like math the advice to accurately record their receipts and expenditures. If they prefer not to do this, and if their circumstances are such that they have enough to cover their expenses, then they do not need to keep records. If their source is inexhaustible, then they can dispense with precise bookkeeping. This circumstance is not insignificant. In theory, it applies to everything that a person considers of value in life and to how competently a person stands and acts in life. And with respect to circumstances on earth, it also applies to the moral feelings of the inhabitants of ancient Europe. Each individual had, as it were, received a divine legacy, felt as though filled with it, and spent it in service to family or tribe or also in service to larger folk group settings. That was how people worked, labored and went about life. We have now characterized two great regions of humanity that are quite different from one another. For the feeling of devotion natural to the Indian people did not exist at all among the European peoples. This is why Christianity found it so difficult to bring this feeling of devotion to the Europeans. Entirely different predispositions prevailed. And now, keeping these considerations in mind, and leaving aside all the objections that might be raised based on moral concepts, let us inquire into their moral effect. It does not take much reflection to see that when these two worldviews, these two predispositions, encountered each other in their purest form, the moral effect was immense. The world has received infinitely much from what could be gained only through the existence of a people like the ancient Indians, where all feeling was focused on devotion, where everything was directed toward the highest, but the world has also been given infinitely much, and it would be possible to show this in detail, through the effects of the courage and the fortitude developed by the European peoples of early pre-Christian times. Both of these qualities had to cooperate, and together they have yielded a specific moral result. We shall see how this moral effect is working even today, how coming from both sides, it has benefited not just a portion of humanity, but all of humanity. And how, in everything that humanity today regards as the highest, we can still see the effect from the Indian people as well as the effect from the ancient Europeans. Can we now simply say, then, that what is generating this moral effect for humanity is the good? Yes, we can say that, without a doubt. We can say that in both of these culture streams, it must be the good, and that something must exist that we can designate as the good. Yet, if we were to ask, what is the good? Then we are once again confronted by a riddle. What is the good that has worked in the one case, and what is the good that has worked in the other? I do not wish to give you moral sermons, for I do not consider this to be my task. Rather, I regard it as my task to present facts to you which can lead to an anthroposophical conception of morality. This is why I have, to begin with, placed before you two sets of known historical facts, and I ask you to note nothing more than just this for now, that the fact of devotion and the fact of courage generate moral effects in the cultural evolution of humanity. 
Let us now turn our attention to a different time period. If you look at your life today and its moral impulses, you will realize, of course, that today, at least in Europe, we cannot conform to what the purest ideals of ancient India require, because European culture cannot be fostered with the Indian form of devotion. But it would be just as impossible for us to attain to our modern European culture with the old, highly praiseworthy, virtue of fortitude displayed by the ancient European peoples. We see at once that there is still something else, something different, lying at the roots of the moral sensibilities of the Europeans. We must search still further, then, to be able to answer the question, what is goodness, what is virtue? I have often pointed out that we have to distinguish between the period we call the Greco-Latin or Fourth Post-Atlantean cultural epoch and the period we call the Fifth Post-Atlantean epoch, which we live in at the present time. And what I shall have to say at this point regarding the nature of morality is really meant to characterize the origin of the Fifth Post-Atlantean epoch. Let us begin with something which you may consider controversial since it is taken from the world of poetry and legend, but which is still characteristic of the way in which new moral impulses became active and flowed into humanity as the fifth post-Atlantean epoch gradually began to unfold. There was a poet who lived around the end of the 12th century and the beginning of the 13th. He died in the year 1213. His name is Hartmann von Auer, This poet created his most noteworthy poem, Der Arme Heinrich, Poor Henry, out of the mode of thinking and feeling prevalent at that time, and in consonance with its conditions and its view of life. This poem expresses exceptionally well how certain moral impulses were regarded in particular circles and regions at that time. This is what the poem describes. Poor Henry once lived as a rich knight, for originally he was not poor Henry, but a rich and well-appointed knight, who did not take into account, however, that the sense-perceptible things of the physical world are but transient and fleeting. He lived only for worldly pursuits, and rapidly generated unfavorable karma as a result. In consequence of this he was stricken with a form of leprosy. He consulted the most celebrated physicians in the world, but since none of them could help him, he gave up his life for lost and sold all his possessions. Because he was not allowed to live in human society on account of his disease, he lived apart on a solitary farm where he was well cared for by an old devoted servant and the servant's daughter. One day the daughter and the whole household learned that there was only one thing that could help a knight who had a destiny such as his that no physician, no medicines could help that night, and that only if a pure virgin were to sacrifice her life for him out of love would his health be restored. In spite of all the exhortations of her parents and of the knight Henry himself, something came over the daughter which made her believe that she was the one who should sacrifice herself. And so she went with the knight to Salerno, the most celebrated school of medicine of the day, and did not shrink from what the physicians required of her. She was ready to sacrifice her life. But the knight did not let it come to that. He prevented it from happening and returned home with her. The poem then tells us 
that when the knight returned home he gradually began to recover, and that he lived for a long time and spent a happy old age with the one who had wished to become his savior. You may now say, of course, that this is a poem, after all, and we need not take the facts described here literally. But this matter can be regarded differently when we compare what Hartmann von Aue, the medieval poet, wrote in his Poor Henry with something that we know actually happened. When we compare what Hartmann von Aue wanted to express in his poem with the life and deeds of an actual well-known person living in Italy at that time, Francis of Assisi, who was born in 1182. Now, in order to describe what developed as personal moral essence, concentrated, as it were, in the single personality of Francis of Assisi, let us consider the matter as it appears to the spiritual investigator, even if people would consider us foolish and superstitious. Let us take these things seriously, for this is how they were taken in that time of transition. We know that Francis of Assisi was the son of the Italian merchant Bernadonna and his wife. We also know that the father, Bernadonna, traveled a great deal in France, where he conducted his business, and that he was a man who placed great value on social standing. The mother of Francis of Assisi possessed the virtue of piety and had other fine qualities of the heart. She lived devoutly according to her religious feelings. Now, the things that are recounted in the form of legends and sagas about the birth and life of Francis of Assisi are fully consistent with the esoteric facts. Even if history frequently veils esoteric facts in pictures and legends, these legends correspond to the esoteric facts. Thus, it is quite true that before the birth of Francis of Assisi, quite a number of people developed an insight a perceptive knowing through visionary revelations, that an important person was about to be born. History records that one of the many people who dreamt, that is to say, who saw in prophetic vision that an important personality was about to be born, was St. Hildegard. Parenthesis, at this point I must emphasize once more the truth of these facts, which can be corroborated by investigations in the Akashic Record. Close quote. She dreamt that a woman appeared to her, whose face was scratched and covered with blood, and that this woman said to her, quote, The birds have their nests here on the earth, the foxes have their holes in the earth, but at present I have nothing, not even a staff to lean on. Close quote. When Hildegard awakened from this dream, she knew that this personality represented the true form of Christianity, and many other persons dreamt in a similar manner. From what they were able to know at the time, they realized that the outer established institution of the church was unfit to be a receptacle, a sheath, for the real Christianity. They came to this insight. One day, while Francis's father was on business in France, this again is a fact, a pilgrim came to the house of Donna Pica, the mother of Francis of Assisi, and candidly said to her, quote, The child you are expecting must not be born in this house, where there is abundance. You must give birth to him in the stable, for he must lie on straw in order to follow his master. Quote. This directive was actually given to the mother of Francis of Assisi, and it is not legend but truth that because the father was in France on business, the mother was able to carry this out. 
so that Francis of Assisi was actually born in a stable and on straw. And another anecdote is also true. Some time after the child was born, a strange man came into the village, a man who had never been seen in that village before and was never seen there since. Again and again he went through the streets saying, quote, An important person has been born in this town. Close quote. And there were also people, those who could still lead a healthy, visionary life, who heard bells ringing at the time of the birth of Francis of Assisi. A whole series of phenomena could not yet be mentioned, but we will restrict ourselves to these, which have been mentioned only to show the meaningful way in which everything coming from the spiritual world was concentrated toward the manifestation of a single personality of that time. And all this becomes especially interesting when we consider one further thing. The mother had the peculiar impression that the child ought to be called John, and he was therefore given this name. It was only when the father returned that he gave his son the name Francis, because he wished to commemorate his successful business journey to France. But originally the child was named John. Now we need to bring out just a few details from the life of this remarkable man, especially from his youth. What sort of a human being do we encounter in Francis of Assisi when we observe him as a young man? He appears as someone who conducted himself like a descendant of the ancient European warriors, which did not strike us as remarkable, considering how the peoples had intermixed after the immigrations from the north, brave, warlike, filled with the ideal of winning honor and fame with the weapons of war. This is what he was. This is what existed like a heritage, like an ethnic characteristic in the personality of Francis of Assisi. And one could say that the qualities which now appeared in him in a more external way, were the qualities that had existed as a more inward soul condition in the ancient Europeans. For Francis of Assisi was simply what one calls a spendthrift. He squandered the possessions of his father, who was at the time a rich merchant. At every opportunity, Francis squandered the fruits of his father's labor and squandered them generously wherever he went. He lavished everything on all his comrades and playfellows, Little wonder, then, that his comrades chose him to lead their youthful, warlike expeditions, and that, as he grew up, he was looked upon as a truly warlike young man, for such was his reputation throughout the whole town. Now, there were all sorts of quarrels between the youths of the towns of Assisi and Perugia, and Francis took part in these various feuds. Thus it came to pass on one occasion that he and his comrades were taken prisoner. And it was Francis who not only bore his own captivity patiently and in knightly fashion, but also reassured and encouraged the others to do the same, until, after a year, they were able to return home. Later on, when a military expedition against Naples was about to be undertaken, which those in the knighthood were required to take part in, It happened that this young man had a dream vision. He saw a great palace, with all kinds of weapons and shields stored in it. He, who prior to this dream had only seen a great variety of cloths in his father's house and place of business, now saw what amounted to a building filled with parts of weapons. And so he said to himself, This is a summons for me to become a soldier. 
and thereupon decided to join the expedition against Naples. But as he was preparing to do this, and even more so after he had joined the expedition, he received spiritual impressions, spiritual messages. He heard something like a voice which said, quote, Go no further. You have wrongly interpreted this dream image, which is of great significance for you. Go back to Assisi, and you will learn how to interpret it correctly. Close quote. He obeyed these words, went back to Assisi, and lo and behold, had something like an inner dialogue with a being who spoke to him spiritually and said, quote, It is not in external service that you must seek your knighthood. You are destined to transform all the forces at your disposal into powers of soul, to transform them into weapons to be used by your soul. The weapons you saw in the palace signify your soul-spiritual weapons of mercy, compassion, and love. The shields signify the reasoning powers you must exercise in order to withstand the trials of a life dedicated to mercy, compassion, and love. Thereafter he had a short but dangerous illness. He recovered from this and then went through something like a review of his whole life in which he dwelt for several days. The young knight, who in his boldest dreams had only longed to become a hero in battle, was reforged, one might say, into a man utterly dedicated to finding the moral impulses of mercy, compassion and love in every last thing. All the forces that he had intended to use in service to the physical world were transformed into moral impulses of the inner life. We see here how a moral impulse is induced in one single person. It is not insignificant that we are here specifically considering a moral impulse of this magnitude. For even if any one person cannot always attain to the greatest ethical heights, it is only where moral impulses manifest most radically and where we see them expressed with the greatest forcefulness that one can learn from them. It is precisely by turning our attention to what is radical and by seeing lesser things in the light of these radical, greater things that we come to a correct conception about the moral impulses of life. But what happened next to Francis of Assisi? It is not necessary to describe the disputes he had with his father when he became prodigal in an entirely different manner. The earlier extravagance, which had actually been advantageous to the father's house because it brought this house fame and esteem, this was something the father could understand. But he could not understand how his son could cast off his best clothes down to his necessities and give them to those in need. Nor could he understand what had come over his son when he said, It is remarkable how little respect is given to those who have done so much for the Christian impulse in the West. Or why Francis of Assisi then proceeded to make a pilgrimage to Rome and laid a large sum of money at the graves of the apostles Peter and Paul. These things his father did not understand. I need not describe the disputes that took place. I need only indicate that for Francis of Assisi all the impulses of morality became fully consolidated through these disputes. These concentrated impulses transformed his fortitude into soul forces and developed in such a way that they underwent a further strengthening in his meditations and then appeared before him as the cross with the crucified one. 
While in this condition, he felt an inner personal relationship to the cross and to the Christ. And from this relationship, forces then came to him through which he could so immeasurably intensify the moral impulses that were now flowing through him. Francis of Assisi found a remarkable way of using what was now unfolding within him. In those days, the horrors of leprosy had spread over many parts of Europe, and the institutionalized church had found a strange kind of cure for the lepers, who were then so numerous. The priests would call the lepers and say to them, quote, You are stricken with this disease in this life, but it is precisely because you are now lost to this life that you have been won for God, that you are consecrated to God. But the lepers were then sent away from other people to isolated places where they had to spend the rest of their lives alone and shunned. I do not want to attribute blame for this kind of cure. People did not know another or better cure, but Francis of Assisi knew a better one. These things are mentioned here because they will guide us through actual experiences to the sources of morality. And you will see in the next lectures why we are dealing with these things. They also impelled Francis of Assisi to go everywhere and search out all the lepers and not to shy away from associating with them. And in fact, the leprosy which none of the remedies of the time could cure, and therefore made it necessary to exclude these people from human society, was healed by Francis of Assisi in numerous instances. He was able to do this, because he went to the lepers with the power coming from his moral impulses, which made him not shrink away from anything, but instead gave him the courage not only to carefully cleanse the lepers' sores, but also to live with them, to nurse them conscientiously, even to kiss them and to permeate them with his love. What we encounter in the form of a poetic story, such as the one about the healing of poor Henry by the daughter of his faithful servant, is more than just a poem. It expresses what actually occurred in a great number of cases at that time through the historically well-known personality of Francis of Assisi. Note carefully what took place there. Within a human being, someone like Francis of Assisi, a tremendous pool of soul force was present, very much like something which had existed as courage and fortitude in the ancient peoples of Europe, but which in his case had been transformed into something soul-spiritual and thereafter worked on the soul-spiritual level. Just as the inner force which in ancient times had been active as generosity and fortitude had led to expenditure on a personal level and had also still manifested in a young Francis of Assisi as compulsive extravagance, so did this now lead him to become prodigal of moral force. He was full to overflowing with moral force, and this actually passed over to those to whom he gave his love. Try to feel that this is a reality, that this moral force is just as much a reality as the air we breathe, and without which we could not live. Try to feel that what flooded the whole being of Francis of Assisi and from there streamed into every heart he turned to is equally a reality. For Francis of Assisi lavished an abundance of forces streaming forth from him. This is what has flowed into and mingled with the whole developing life of Europe. This is what transformed into a force of soul 
and worked in this way in the world of external reality. Try to reflect on these facts, which at first may seemingly have nothing to do with the actual question of morality. Try to grasp what constitutes Indian devotion and Nordic courage. Try to evaluate the healing effect of such moral forces as were exercised by Francis of Assisi. Then tomorrow we shall be able to speak about what real moral impulses are, and we shall see that it is not merely words but realities that are at work in the soul and that establish morality. The end of Lecture 3